couple weeks ago at our house, we had movie night. And with a four-year-old and a one-year-old in the house, that usually means cartoons at this point. So we popped the popcorn, we, we got the blankets out, and we all snuggled up on the couch, and we rented How to Train Your Dragon. Has anybody seen that? Okay, quite a few hands. I see some people even without kids. All right. <laughs> That's good. That's good. <laughs> oh, he's the kid. I see. Um, the beginning of that movie starts out, it's a nighttime in a Viking village, and right from the get-go, the, the sky is filled with fire as these dragons begin to attack this Viking village. And the Vikings in this village fight back every way they know how, swords, catapults, whatever it takes to, to knock these dragons out of the sky. And you can just tell from the narration, from the way this scene's going on, that this is the way it's always been for these people and these dragons. It's always been dragons versus Vikings, Vikings versus dragons, for as long as anyone could remember. Now, it was that way for everyone in that village except for a little boy named Hiccup. Hiccup didn't want to have anything to do with killing dragons, And he was mocked relentlessly by the rest of the Vikings. You know, you're a Viking, you kill dragons. That's what you do. Especially his dad was the leader of the village. That makes it worse. So one day, he he was getting tired of being mocked, and, and he wanted to fit in. He wanted to fit in with the rest of his village, and he was kind of an inventor. So he created this weapon that would fire a net into the sky at a flying dragon and capture it and, and bring it to the ground. And he went out on this mountaintop and he, he fires his net into the sky and he got one. And he goes around telling people, I, I, I got one. Yeah, whatever, Hiccup. We know you. They wouldn't believe him. But the next day he went out and he began looking to see where this dragon fell down out of the sky because he knew that he had gotten one. Well, after searching all day in the woods, he hears a noise and he looks and he finds wrapped up in this net this giant dragon. And, and the first thought going through his mind is, maybe this is my chance, my chance to, to kill a dragon and fit in with the, the rest of the Vikings. Only as he got closer and closer to the dragon, there was a moment where their eyes met. And it doesn't say it in the movie, but it was almost as though they, they both realized that this other person, this other dragon, this dragon had, had a heartbeat just like theirs, had uh, fears and, and hopes just like theirs, that, that there was uh, something that bound them together. So instead of killing this dragon like he was thinking about doing, he, he cuts open the net and, and sets it free. And what happens over the next few scenes, there are many uh, scary, uh, awkward moments where Hiccup risks his life to befriend this dragon. He even named the dragon Toothless. And he, would f- he fed Toothless fish to help Toothless uh, regain his strength. He, he fixed his tail. This part of his tail had broken so he couldn't fly. And, and Toothless let Hiccup fly on his back. That's how Hiccup came to find out the true nature of the battle between dragons and Vikings. See, one day, Toothless flew 
hiccup over to the dragon's lair. And as they arrived at the dragon's lair, all these other dragons were coming back. They'd just finished raiding the Vikings, and they're, they're bringing sheep and all kinds of livestock. And what Hiccup expected to see was these dragons eating the sheep, the livestock, but what he saw instead clued him in on the true nature of the battle between dragons and Vikings. He saw these dragons dropping the sheep down into this giant pit where this ferocious, larger-than-life, angry creature lived. And that's when Hiccup realized that the dragons acted the way they did. They, they raided the Vikings the way they did because they were held hostage by this huge and evil creature. Why do I tell you that story? I don't work for DreamWorks, first of all. I'm not on commission. I tell you that story because I think it's a great parable, a modern-day parable. And I'm sure... It's not the way the producers intended it, but it's my sermon. It's our first night, so humor me. <laughs> I think it's a great parable of the way those of us who believe in Jesus Christ sometimes are guilty of interacting with those who do, don't believe in Jesus Christ. And I think some who look in from the outside, based on our behavior sometimes, if you were to ask them what's important to Christians, based on what some of them have seen, they might say fighting with people who don't believe in Jesus. Because sometimes as Christians, we, we fall into this mindset that as long as we vote against them, debate against them, and yell our point so it goes down their throat before their point goes down ours, we're doing pretty good. Or as long as we hunker down in our Christian fortresses, and stay busy in our Christian schedules so we can just stay away from them. We're doing pretty good. Or sometimes we get in our little Christian circles and, and we're guilty of taking great pleasure in, in just laughing and talking about how disgusting and, and vile they are. And we get attaboys from, from the rest of the Vikings. They're saying, yeah, you're right, her. And all the while... It makes me wonder if we have forgotten the true nature of the battle. Do you remember what Ephesians 6.12 says? Because our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our battle is against Satan and his demons. It's not against those who don't believe in Jesus. It makes me wonder, have we forgotten that unbelievers are hostages in this battle? 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, The God of this age, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I want you to listen with me to a moment to how the Bible, how God describes those who don't believe in Jesus. We won't look at every place. We'll look at a few. It says they stand condemned 
Bible says they walk in the dark and do not know where they're going. It says they're slaves to sin. They cannot please God. They're spiritually dead. They're separate from Christ without hope and without God in the world. Revelation 20 says they will be thrown into the lake of fire. I don't know how you react when you hear that. I don't know what that does to your heart. I just know that as long as people who don't believe in Jesus are those people over there, it's easy to be hostile towards them because that's just the way it's always been. But when you come to that moment in your life where, where you look them in the eye, you realize they got a heartbeat just like yours. You realize they're created in the image of God just like you are. You realize what's really going on under the surface. It ought to break your heart. When I was a student at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, I worked for a catering company. And at that catering company, we had a lot of gay men that worked with us. One of them was a head butler that I worked with a lot named Andy. And being a, a, a good Bible college student, right, I made sure to go out of my way to let Andy know how his behavior offended me. He would call me his little B dash 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 dash. And I would get riled up and say, Andy, I'm not your B dash 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 dash. <laughs> Whatever that is. <laughs> and I felt pretty good about it because I was taking a stand, right? I was standing up and letting him know that, that what he was doing was wrong and, and I didn't appreciate it. Now, at the same time, there were a group of Moody students. I don't mean they were uh, sometimes happy and sometimes sad. <laughs> they went to Moody Bible Institute, which, side note... For a while, it took Moody Bible Institute a while to realize they needed to change the name of their magazine. For years, they called it Moody Monthly. <laughs> they finally changed that. <laughs> but at the same time I was taking my stand against Andy, there was a group of Moody students that would invite him to game nights and, and meals after we worked. And I never told them this, but I inwardly judged every one of them. I judged them, and I assumed that they were, they were compromising their walk with God by, by spending time outside of work with Andy. That somehow they were being tainted by hanging out with Andy. I'm starting to feel kind of like a confession, right? Just earlier this year, uh, through Facebook and a couple of those friends, I, I found out that Andy passed away. Uh, Andy was only in his 50s. And my heart sunk. 
See, I don't know where Andy stood with the Lord when he died. What I do know is that I never once, never once told him about a Savior that loved him. I never once told him about a Savior that loved him so much that he came to die on a cross and and forgive his sins and to, to heal the hurts in his life. I never told him about a Savior that had forgiven my own sin. Was it wrong for me to take a stand? I don't think I'm saying that. What was wrong, though, was that I was more concerned about how his behavior offended me than I was about his eternal destiny. See, all of a sudden, I, I look back and saw the missionary heart of God in those other Moody students. They were seeking to build a relationship with Andy so they could t- begin to talk about what really mattered. And what I want to ask this room tonight, what I want to ask you to grapple with is who are the Andys in your life? And are you making the same mistake that I did? You know, quick look through the Bible. Show you God's heart for the Andes of the world. And not just the Andes, but every every lost person. Which let me remind us, if you're a believer, you were one. (laughs) Um, Ezekiel 33, 11. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Romans 9, 2 and 3, this is Paul talking about his own countrymen in Israel who didn't believe in Jesus. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ." For the sake of my brothers. You know how much Paul loved Jesus, right? For him to say, I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from the love of my life for the sake of my brothers. That shows you God's heart. Matthew 9, 36 says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You know, we serve a Savior who was called a friend of sinners. We serve a Savior who talked about searching for one lost sheep, one lost coin, waiting for one lost son. We serve a Savior who came to seek and save what was lost, and here's the question that, that my family's been wrestling with over this past year. How can we say we're Christ followers if we don't go where Christ would go? How can we say we're Christ followers if we don't talk to the people Jesus would talk to? 
How can we say we're Christ's followers if we don't love the people Christ would love? How can we say we're Christ's followers if we don't follow Christ? And it's some of those questions that began to stir inside of us that led to uh, the beginning of the church next door. We started wrestling with these questions and a, a small group of people began to, to wrestle with those same questions with us. The story behind the name, the idea behind that, is church is not just a one-hour service once a week. Church is not just some place we go Sunday morning or, or Sunday night. The, the Greek word we get church from is ekklesia. It means the called out ones. It, it's who we are as believers in Jesus Christ. And for that neighbor that lives next door to us, that coworker, that person we wait at the bus stop with, you can go on and on. We may be the only church that they ever see. And being the church is 24-7 because it's who we are. A number of years ago, a lot of you have heard of Warren Wearsby, who was a great pastor, did a lot of good study of God's word. He did a study of the early church in the book of Acts. And I just, we're not going to put them up here, but if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to do this little study with me. I think it's worth it. Start out by turning to the book of Acts. And we're going to start out in Acts chapter 2, verse 46. I think you'll find this interesting. I know I did. It opened my eyes to some things. Acts 2.46 is the first verse. And what I want to do as we look at each of these four verses is ask two questions. What was it that the early church did? And how often did they do it? Okay, you got those two questions? What was it that they did? And how often they did it? Acts 2.46, the phrase in there that says, every day they continued to meet together. Okay, what was it they did? They met together how often? Okay, every day. Acts 6 1. Acts 6 1 says the Grecian Jews among them complained because their widows were being looked in the daily distribution of food. Some of you are going to say they complained every day, right? (laughs) That's not what we're after. It happens sometimes. What else do you see that they did every day in that verse? They distributed food to those widows. They cared daily. So we got they met daily. They cared daily. Acts 17, 11. We got a group here called the Bereans that Paul was speaking to. It's the Bereans examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. What did they do? How often did they do it? Every day. Okay, and one more. You guys are good. Acts 2.47. As the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. 
What happened? Yeah, people were saved how often? Every day. Every day. The church was a once a week thing for these people? No. And I wrestle with how, how do we get that back? Maybe, maybe, maybe you're different than me. Maybe you haven't lost it. But I just looked at my own life and thought, man, there's, there's something that they were, they, they were experiencing that, honestly, I, I'm not, and I want that. And, and you think about how do we get that back? I don't know that it's a one, two, three kind of thing. I know it's got to start with prayer. I know it's got to start with us repenting and turning our back on our own selfish, comfortable priorities. I know it looks like yielding to the Holy Spirit and saying, have your way in my life. I'm done trying to control this thing. But I also know we have to be intentional. We have to make some choices. And that's why at the church next door, we come up with the mission that we have. Our mission at the church next door is to train missional communities to share Jesus in tangible ways. That's what drives us. That's what we want to look at at the end of the day and say, have we done what what God called us to do at the church next door? We want to train missional communities to share Jesus in tangible ways. Now, there's a lot packed into that little sentence, so I want to break it down. You start with train. There's a biblical basis for that in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, where Paul says, it was he who gave some to be prophets, evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare, train, equip God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. See, I don't believe for a minute that God put His Holy Spirit inside of you and raised you in Jesus Christ to be seated at the right hand of the Father so you could sit and listen That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. Because sitting and listening alone does not lead to maturity. It says maturity and unity and completeness in the church happens when pastors and other leaders take their roles to equip others for works of service. That's when the maturity starts kicking in. That's when the unity And the fullness of Christ begins to kick in. And I've thought a lot about what does it mean to train? What what does that look like? And I've thought a lot about it. For me, you know, I love to preach. And I look at the, the New Testament and I hear Paul challenging those young men that he mentored, preach the word of God in season and out of season. So that's a part of it, but I I think it's something more. At least for me, when I think about training, if I think of preaching, I think of telling. I think of training, I think of of showing. And that's some of what God's been challenging me about. How can you preach this heart for the lost if you're not out there doing it? 
You can't. Preaching is talking. Training is doing side by side. You know, if preaching is air support, if you think of uh, in terms of military, if preaching is air support, training to me is getting down in the trenches with the troops right there where the bullets are flying and wrestling with what does this look like? And that's part of why as we talk about missional communities, we've developed a, a nine-week training. If, if someone in here said, I want to lead a missional community in my neighborhood, we've got a nine-week training that you can go through with a group of other believers to wrestle with. What does this look like? How is this different than a small group? How do, how do we carry this out in our neighborhood? And then after the training, we've got ongoing coaching, regular meetings, face-to-face where we're wrestling with it together. Why is training so important? It's biblical. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.2, listen to what Paul said to Timothy. He said, the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. I want you to think about how many generations of passing on you got going here. Where did Paul get it? Jesus. You got Jesus to Paul to Timothy to reliable men to others. Five passes of the baton. And I'm thinking if it was important for Jesus and Paul to pass it on, it's probably important for us too. When we get to the second part of the, the statement there, missional community, what, what is that? It's a buzzword in a lot of circles these days. For us, a missional community is a group of people building meaningful relationships who are on a mission to share Jesus in tangible ways. I don't know what you think of when you read that word tangible, but I think of ways that are seen, ways that are felt, smelled, tasted, not just heard. And some of us, myself included, are often very good at the heard part. <laughs> it was Rick Warren that said, when you look at the body of Christ, the mouth works pretty good, but the hands and feet look like they're paralyzed a lot of the time. It's all those things together. And every missional community for us has a heartbeat. I want to tell you about the heartbeat of a missional community. If you pictured it as a giant heart, Here's the heartbeat. Gather, go. Gather, go. Gather, go. You got that heartbeat? Okay. The gather, we know that's important, right? Hebrews 10.25, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. You know, like, like an average small group, they get together weekly and they, they open the Bible they pray together. They encourage each other. They, they eat together. They have fun together. So what makes a missional community different from a small group? I'm not saying this about every small group because I know there are small groups that are doing exactly what we're talking about. But for a lot of small groups, a small group is of believers, by believers, for believers. And that's where it stops. A missional community looks at that and says, no, that, that's not what we're about. We, we, we've got to gather, but we've also got to go. 
Matthew 28, you remember what Jesus said. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, sit in your churches and wait for all nations to come to you so you can make disciples of them. You remember that? No, I don't either because that's not what Jesus said. He said, go. (laughs) Some of you were sleeping, man. (laughs) He said, go and make disciples of all nations. And one, One night we had our missional community in our living room. It was our well-lit living room, and it was dark outside, and, and I, I closed all the shutters in our living room, and I said, you know what, guys? This is what too many small groups are like. There's a lot of light going on inside. There's a lot of warmth. There's a lot of excitement, but no one out there has any idea what's going on in here. And last time I checked, when Jesus talked about light, he said not to do that, Right? Yeah, don't hide it. So I opened up all the shutters and I said, you guys, this is what we want. We want that warmth and excitement and love that we have going on with Jesus and each other in here to go out into that neighborhood to people that need it. Now, some of you are automatically going, what does that going look like? Because I ain't going door to door passing out tracks. (laughs) Neither am I. I know how much I enjoy it when I'm eating my pancakes, watching my football on Saturday, and <laughs> I, I, I answer the door because God wants me to, but my first reaction isn't, oh, good, <laughs> they're here. Um, so, <laughs> I'm not talking about going door to door, passing out tracks, not to say God doesn't use that. Because sometimes he does. And maybe you do that and God's blessed it. I'm not against that. It's just not where we're going. What I'm talking about, what what does this going look like? One of our missions for our missional communities is a party. All right, some of you guys are like, yeah, I can handle a party, right? Um, You you look at your missional community and say, this week, guys, we're going to skip the gathering and you're going to all go back to your own house and you're going to invite three or four people on your street that you don't know over for a barbecue over for the big game, you name it. You're going to have a party at your house and you're going to get to know those people in your world, whether it's a coworker, a neighbor. Uh, one of them is hospitality. We've gotten so far away from that today in so many instances. We're so busy and we're so disconnected. Um, I live on a street where if you looked up and down the street on an average day, you would swear everyone had a tunnel to work or wherever they go because they just hunkered down. And we decided to see what would happen if we had a party, if we invited some of them over. We, we passed out flyers, took the wagon around the neighborhood and said, hey, we're having a barbecue. About 20 people showed up and had a great time. We did it again with ice cream and about 20 more people showed up. You know what that told me? People want it. They just don't want to be the first one to ask because they're afraid they'll look desperate or something. Like, like I had to talk to my neighbor to hang out. Like, man, they, what are they going to think? I must not have any friends. But they want to. Um, One of the missions is a group wild card, where as a leader, you look at your group and say, hey, this time, as a group, we get to pray about how we're going to be missional. What what needs do you know of? What's going on in the lives of people that you know? Who's someone we could reach out to? And I'll give you just one example. Uh, In our missional community, uh, there's a gal who would wait at the bus stop every morning. 
And there was another lady that would wait there with her as, at, for the kids. There's no public transit around here for school. Um, and they would talk, and the gal in our group invited the lady to go trick-or-treating with the people from our missional community. Hope that doesn't offend anyone. We, we trick-or-treat. But um, they came along, and we had, a, like, what, like 12 kids that night? It was great. Every house freaked out when <laughs> 12 kids showed up. But this couple was there with us having a great time. And then it came time uh, in our, our rhythm of our group to have our group wild card. And we threw it out there. What do you guys want to do? And, and the gal in our group that had invited that lady trick-or-treating said, you know, she just had uh, her tonsils out. And she got two kids and a husband. And she's out of commission for 10 days. C- could we line up meals for her for 10 days? And I got to back this up by saying this was a couple who... Over the years, for whatever reason, had grown skeptical of the church. They were sort of removed from it. We all signed up, and for 10 days, that lady and her family got meals. And I thought that was so cool as, as uh, Carissa brought back the thank you notes saying uh, she was so thankful. She's blown away by this. And I thought, how often do we do that for each other? But it stops there. It stops there. Why does it stop there? There's an individual wild card where a leader looks at the group and says, hey, this week we're skipping the gathering. You all figure out on your own as a family, as an individual, how you're going to go out there and be the hands and feet of Jesus. And the last kind is a a group service project where your missional community is going to find something labor intensive that's going to get you dirty and stinky, and you're going to go out and do it as a group. Maybe it's painting the school in your neighborhood to help that janitor then you come to the, the question, why? Why do we do these things? Is it just to be a, a social activist club? Is it just to make our neighborhood a better place? No. Just like there are enough small groups of believers, by believers, for believers, there's also enough social activist groups. Our purpose is to share Jesus' love in tangible ways. Something interesting. We believe what Paul said in Romans 1, that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he died and rose again, is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. And that's a message that must be spoken. It must be believed. But you know what? That same Paul, who believed so much in that spoken message of the gospel, listen to what he said to the Thessalonians. He said, we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Somehow, I think that goes beyond attract. To share your life with someone takes time, takes love, takes inconvenience. And we've even put together something called the journey, which is an ongoing rhythm of Bible studies and missions for a missional community to get this heartbeat going in their group. So I've told you our mission. I've told you our heartbeat. Now I need to tell you that at the church next door, we aim, we plan to remain simply and boldly focused on that mission. That means we're going to say no to a lot of good things. 
lot of good ideas so that we can say yes to what we believe God's calling us to in missional communities. That means even Sundays will serve that mission. Yes, we'll have Sundays. We plan to because, like I said, we believe in the preaching of the word of God. We believe in the encouragement and the, the worshiping together. But the last thing I'm interested in is only filling up another church building on Sunday with believers. If that's all we do, I'll throw up or quit. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in that. Sundays will serve as a funnel into missional community because that's what we're about. So you're asking, there's your mission, there's your heartbeat. So Scott, where do things stand today? And if you're a missional community leader or leader in training, I'd like you to start making your way to the front right now. Um, as they're walking up, just stay with me for a minute. We'll introduce them in a second. I just want to tell you that as of today, by God's grace, there are two of these missional communities already up and running. One of them meets in the viewpoint on Tuesday nights. Uh, one of them meets in Stone Ridge on Wednesday nights, and by February, Lord willing, we're going to have seven of these missional communities around the Tri-Cities. Let me tell you where they're going to be. Uh, in January, we launch one in Chino Valley on Saturday mornings. That's just for women. We also launch another one in January in Pinion Oaks in Prescott. That's for anyone. In February, we've got three more launching, uh, one in Unit 20, in Prescott Valley, one right in Central Prescott Valley, and one in Granville. And I want to take a minute to, to introduce these guys to you. They're going to be in the lobby afterwards also. We're, we hope you'll stick around. We've got uh, coffee and cookies. If you want to be out there, anyone who has these white tags on is there for you to say, hey, what in the world are you thinking? Why are you doing this stuff? What, are you nuts? Don't you know Scott? <laughs> But you know what's cool? Every time I talk to one of these guys about why they're doing it, oh my goodness, there's, there's a passion. I've heard one of them say, you know what, I feel like we're not just hearing the vision anymore. I feel like we're a part of it. And I'm like, yeah, that's the idea. That's cool. So this is uh, Tim and Jamie. They actually go to the Ridge Church here that's graciously let us use their building. Tim's an elder here. Jamie's on the worship team. They're out in Unit 20 in Prescott Valley. They'll be launching in February. And I'm going to talk about the Ridge a little more in a few minutes. We got some churches linking arms saying, hey, it's not about my little kingdom anymore. It's about God's kingdom and working together. We got Steve and Virgie Riker. They've been part of this little team starting to crank things up at church next door. They're out in Pinion Oaks and looking at January. We got Wade and Gloria. Wade and Gloria, this, this is the pastor of the Ridge Church here who has let us use this building for three months for free. And his wife, Gloria, he calls her his honey bunny. <laughs> they're in Granville, and they're going to be launching in February. Yeah, so we've got Jim and Lori here. We've been longtime friends, worked together. And uh, these guys are getting ready to work with Stephen Virgie over in Pinion Oaks come January. And we're excited about that. And this guy here is Scott Madsen. He and his wife, Marcy, have already launched their group in Stone Ridge. Scott also happens to be our other elder at the church next door. And it's been a lot of fun linking arms and 
drinking coffee early in the morning and uh, uh, a lot of praying. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I got, oh, <laughs> I've got his name tag. Mine should say Viewpoint. See, that's one of the troubles of having two Scots on the team. But uh, I just want you to see these faces because this is not just some idea on paper. We're starting to see life behind this, and that's what's exciting. People are stepping out and taking the challenge. So thank you all. They'll be in the lobby afterwards. Um, you guys can have a seat. Um, I appreciate every one of you. When you came in, um, you were handed two cards, and I want to tell you that the one card is sort of a mini program, and on the back of it, it tells you where all of our missional communities are and will be. It also tells you that there's a training that starts Thursday, January 27th, from 6.30 to 8 o'clock. It's a nine-week training, and that particular training, I'm going to introduce you to someone else here. We've got Pastor John Dickerson from the Cornerstone Church, a good friend and partner in ministry here. That particular training is going to be with a number of families from Cornerstone Church, and you're invited. If you're, if you're here and you're saying, hey, God's tugging at me. I'd like to find out more about leading one of these missional communities. I want you to look at that card. Uh, we'll take offering in a little bit here. You can drop that in there. There's a couple options for you to circle if you want to. One of them at the top says, I would like to find out more about leading a missional community. Uh, one of them says, I would like to find out more about joining a missional community. We know that not everyone in here or anywhere is going to be called to lead one. That's okay. But maybe you say, hey, I'd like to be a part of one. And we also know that not everybody's called to that. That's okay. But if God's tugging at you, circle one of those. Underneath that, you can see we also have a slot to circle if you'd like to help us out. We have another preview service just like this one, the second Sunday in January at 6 o'clock right here. If you'd like to help us with children, youth, uh, administration, there's like five areas there. You can circle that if you have a prayer request, or if you just want to put your information down to stay on our contact list, just fill that out, drop it in the offering plate, and we'll be in touch with you. I mentioned a second ago about churches working together. That's one of the things that excites me more than anything about this whole thing that's happening. When we first started out, we thought we were either going to have to choose between churches working together or planting a church because we thought surely... If, we, if we're planting a church and we go to another church and we say we want to work together, the first thing the pastor's going to say is, no, this, this is mine. Um, no, you're trying to take, no, 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 no. That's not what's happened. Uh, with Wade and John and others that we've started to talk to, we've seen a bigger mentality that says, hey, this is not about my kingdom. This is about God's kingdom. This is about a world that needs Jesus. Uh, one of my friends put it this way. He said, pastors fighting over, over territory, like three ants eating an elephant, and one of them saying, get away, that's mine. There's more than enough ministry to go around. And uh, when I talk about churches working together, I think what Jesus said. Jesus said, they will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. When I see churches saying, hey, we're in this together, that's what, I, that's what I picture, what Jesus was saying. And it's not just these three churches that, that God is using. I spent eight years at the Heights Church, 
And I'm so thankful for that place. That's a, a place that God is using to advance his kingdom. There's Calvary, there's harvest, there's a ton of good work. And I probably left some, someone out that's going to get mad. I'm sorry. There's, there's a ton of good churches where God's doing his work. I'm just saying, let's, <laughs> we're on the same team. And uh, I just think that's one of the most exciting things. Um, I don't know how often you even see that. Three logos from three churches on one page. <laughs> I'm thankful for that. But I want to close by talking about our motivation. Why do we do what we do? Why are we so passionate about being missional? 2,000 years ago, there was a baby Jesus born in a stinky cave to a teenage virgin. No, he was on a rescue mission. And it's a rescue mission you can trace from the beginning of, the, of this book all the way into eternity future. It's a, a rescue mission of him restoring, God restoring community, restoring relationship with humanity. And it was a rescue mission that took him to a splintered wooden cross in an empty tomb. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us what happened at that cross for those of us who have trusted in Jesus. And if you're here and you haven't, this is available to you. This isn't for some exclusive club. He, he died for the world. For our sake, He, that's God, made Him to be sin who knew no sin. That's Jesus. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, the reformer Martin Luther called this the great exchange. Jesus took our sin upon himself. And he gave us in exchange the, the righteousness of God. See, as believers, we don't live missionally to somehow gain God's favor. We live missionally out of gratitude because he already gave us his favor freely in Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask you a question. When's the last time the good news of Jesus made you cry? because of what it means in your life if you've trusted in that. I recently met a pastor who that's the only question he would ask when he was hiring another pastor on his staff. He, he had another pastor that asked all the nitty-gritty stuff, but when he came to the lead pastor, the lead pastor would ask, when's the last time the gospel made you cry? Why did he do that? He did that because he knows the best ministers don't minister to gain God's approval because that can't happen. We can't do enough. They minister out of a deep-seated peace and rest that they have God's approval because of their relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the same for everyone in this room. If you've trusted in Jesus, you find your significance not in what you do for him, but in what he's done for you. So I want to close with a prayer that uh, Martin Luther himself prayed. 
It's a prayer that reminds us of where we find our significance. And, and I want to invite you to repeat it with me one line at a time. I also want to make a special invitation. Maybe you're here today and all you've experienced in your life is Christians that want to fight you. And tonight you're coming to know there's a Savior who loves you and died for you. You can make this prayer your own if as you say this, not the words, there's no magic potion here, but if in your heart you place your trust in what Jesus Christ did on the cross and in the resurrection for you, salvation is waiting right in his hand. So I want to invite you to repeat after me. Just bow our heads, close our eyes. Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness. I am your sin. You took on you what was mine. You set on me what was yours. You became what you were not. That I might become what I was not.